0: Today's text is John chapter 13, and it marks a significant shift in the Gospel of John. What we would call the public ministry of Jesus has just ended in chapter 12. And chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 captures a, a more intimate time when Jesus alone is a, alone with just his disciples the night before his death. And it's during this time that he teaches them and encourages them and prays for them. And I pray that Jesus' words and actions will teach and encourage us this morning. And just a quick uh, place setting here. At Grace City Church, we take communion every week, eating the bread and drinking the juice as a reminder, as a way, as a way of proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. And this ordinance began with Jesus at the Last Supper And that is the setting of our text. And so with that, Kara is going to read John 13, verses 1 through 17.
1: Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.
0: Let's pray together. Father, we want to again thank you for this morning that we can come before you as brothers and sisters and worship your holy name now as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would guide us to understand what you have for us today, help us to receive your word with all eagerness, and in humility obey. As we've just heard, we know that the Lord Jesus is both Lord and teacher, and so we pray that you, you Father, would help us to see him as Lord and teacher to treat him as Lord and teacher, and that we would do all of these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus' hour had come. So now he's making preparations for his imminent arrest, humiliation, and crucifixion, where he will be crushed for the sins of every believer under the righteous judgment of God. Everything was leading up to this. And why would Jesus choose to endure all of this? For love, because Jesus loves his own, loves them to the end. And he's unwavering in his mission, and he's completely secure in the Father's hand. At the same time, Jesus' heart is heavy with what lies before him later this night and into the next day. But do you know whose hearts were not heavy? The disciples. They were not concerned about this at all, even though Jesus had warned them over and over that his death was approaching. In fact, Luke in his gospel records an interesting detail that may help us grasp the weight of Jesus' actions. Now remember, this is at the Last Supper, and Jesus has just finished telling them to eat the bread and to drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus. And how did the disciples react to this somber event? Let's read Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. It says this, "...a dispute also arose among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest." Now, picture Jesus at this point rising from the table and then take off his outer garment, tie a towel around his waist, and then say to them, But I am among you as the one who serves. And then he fills the basin with water, kneels at the feet of the first disciple, and washes his feet. Feet that were in desperate need of washing. The feet of a grown man who had been walking for miles on dirt roads with no socks. This was a humble act. And then Jesus does the same thing to the next disciple, and the next, and the next. Now, none of the disciples are arguing about which one is the greatest. The humility of the master has silenced their boasting. They have just had their definition of greatness ruined. The greatest is to be as the youngest, as the least honored, as the servant of all. Can you imagine the confusion? And we must understand this foot-washing event in two ways. Jesus is teaching them what he has done for all of us and what his followers ought to do in response. Jesus has set an example, yes, for all believers to engage in humble service to others rather than to pursue worldly glory. But Jesus did much more than that here. With this one event Jesus has proclaimed the gospel. This was not merely good advice for us to follow. This was the good news. What do I mean? Well, children, have you ever made a diorama? Any kids make a diorama in school? Adults, do you remember making a diorama in school? Yes, it's typically an open shoebox, unless you went extra fancy. And then you construct a miniature scene, usually using whatever you can find lying around the house. Toothpicks or cardboard or paint, perhaps a G.I. Joe or some Lego people. It's best to stay away from perishables (laughs) when you're making a diorama. If the diorama is, is for a book or a movie, it usually would depict one single scene, but that scene would represent the bigger story. Let's say you did a diorama of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Perhaps you would make a diorama of when Charlie Bucket finds the fifth golden ticket. It's one brief scene, but it sort of captures the essence of the overall Movie. Now The events of John 13 are like a living diorama of the entirety of Christ's redemptive work. A living diorama. Let's piece it together. We're going to read John 13. We're going to read 3 through 5. And then we're going to tack on verse 12. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? So how does that brief event capture the essence of the gospel itself? Well, we're going to picture those same actions that we just read about. But we're going to picture them as we read Paul's words in Philippians 2 as he teaches the humility of Christ, along with the sequence of his victorious mission. So again, we're picturing Jesus sitting at the table in the place of honor to start. Verse 5 of Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, that would be the mind of humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he was in the place of honor. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient Of God the Father. This is the gospel. The Lord Jesus, eternally existing with the Father in glory, condescends to become a lowly servant among his people. And in the form of a servant, he cleanses our sin and our filth and now has returned to glory. He has resumed his place. And then the same question is posed to each one of us. Do you understand what Jesus has done? Now, do you hate that I use the word condescend in regards to Jesus? I mean... We should never be condescending, right? I mean, that's terrible. Adults, if you have a coworker who speaks in a condescending way, I mean, how dare that coworker speak to you like that? You're a fellow adult, and yet that coworker may be treating you like a child. Being condescending is terrible, right? And you know that that coworker's condescending tone communicates. Your co-worker's perception that he or she is superior to you, perhaps both positionally and also intellectually. But the word condescending can be beautiful if we keep it with its right meaning, especially in regards to what Jesus has done. In the words of Jeremy Martinson, the word condescend is worth fighting for. I agree with that. Now as a nerd for words, we're going to dissect this word condescend to make sure we grasp what I'm getting at. Condescend has two parts, right? Con and descend. Con, which means with, like we use words like Convention or congregation, being together, being with one another. And then descend, of course, means to lower yourself or to be lowered. Right? If you go up the stairs, you ascend, and if you go down the stairs, you descend. So we put them together, saying that Jesus condescended means that he lowered himself to be With us. Even we can condescend in good ways as well as bad ways. If my precious five year old daughter attempted to, let's say, touch a freshly brewed pot of coffee by grabbing the glass sides, I may stop her sharply. And then I would kneel down and look her in the eyes and say, that is hot. It can burn your hands, and it would hurt so bad. Do not touch that. That would be appropriate condescension. I have temporarily left my normal position, and I have joined her, not only physically, but intellectually. I have chosen sentence length and vocabulary Not according to my understanding, but to hers. And that would be all done out of love. So what about Jesus? Did he condescend? Absolutely. Out of love for his precious people, he left his eternal position of glory. And in humility, he joined lowly humanity and revealed the Father in ways that we understand. The condescension of Christ was for our salvation. But Peter, as he's watching Jesus humbly wash feet, he doesn't quite grasp this spiritual truth. Verses 6 through 8. So he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Ouch. And amen. Jesus has seamlessly moved the conversation from the physical act of foot washing to the spiritual reality that it represents. What a statement. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus has revealed that the foot washing is in part a metaphor for salvation. Those who are not yet washed by Jesus have no share with him. They have none of his gracious promises and they have no eternity with Jesus without having their sins washed away by the cleansing work of the cross and Peter can't bear the thought of having no share with Jesus so he becomes all too willing to be washed by Jesus verses 9 through 11 Simon Peter said to him Lord not my feet only but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Again, Jesus using the washing of the feet to explain a deeper truth. When you are washed by Jesus, you are clean. Did you hear that, child of God? If Jesus has washed you, you are clean. And yet ongoing cleansing will continue to be necessary in this life from the sin that clings so closely. We call this sanctification. We must embrace the Spirit's work in us to prune us and to make us more like Jesus. We must not draw back our dirty feet like Peter did at first, pulling away from Jesus and saying, No, I won't allow you to wash me. So Peter, chosen and loved by Jesus, is washed. But, as is often the case with Peter, he continues his attempts to tell Jesus what to do and to correct Jesus' thinking. This was a pattern with Peter. Earlier in his ministry, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's on a mission that will lead to his death, Peter rebukes Jesus. Later, when Jesus is arrested, in keeping with God's plan, Peter fights to free him and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. In the book of Acts, when God gives Peter a vision of animals and says, get up, kill, and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord. And here, as Jesus approaches Peter to wash his feet, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And even after Jesus tells him, this is necessary for me to wash your feet, then Peter says, okay, but also, wash my hands and wash my head. Perhaps Peter would do well to learn to stop telling Jesus what to do. To stop correcting Jesus. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you would do well to learn to stop telling Jesus what to do or to correct Jesus. Have you ever found yourself telling Jesus what to do to best serve you when his plan is Obviously different? Or have you attempted to correct Jesus once he has spoken to best fit your needs? Or is he truly your teacher and your Lord? Your Lord and your teacher. We read verses 13 through 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So after learning from Jesus what he has done, we arrive at the challenge of what we ought to do in response. If you have understood what Jesus has done, which means if by faith you have been washed by Christ's death on the cross, which was his humble service to you, then you are clean and you have a share in his kingdom. Now what do we who are in the beloved son's kingdom do in response? We follow his example. Humble service. But, quick warning, we must be on guard not to put our service on display as a way of boasting in our service to others. That would only be serving ourselves. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns the crowds By saying, in chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he gives an example of this. Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, So we are to humbly and joyfully serve in this life, not for our glory, but for God's glory. If we boast even of our humble service, aren't we just repeating the argument of the disciples about who is the greatest? May Jesus correct us again and again and again from this. We must avoid seeking a spotlight For our service, but rather we ought to seek to let the light of God shine out of us for His glory. Jesus says earlier in that same Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. And put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So our acts of service are not a show for our glory. They are for the glory of God alone. Yet our desire to imitate Jesus ought to permeate our entire lives. We can't have a relationship with Jesus in private and have it not affect every single interaction with other people. And may the Holy Spirit soften the hearts of those who are around us to see our lives and cause them to wonder, who is this God so gracious that is, people choose to humbly serve one another. How can they so freely reject the admiration and the glory that the world has to offer? Who is this Jesus, really, who is so worthy of being served in this way? You see, our choice to serve must be rooted not in a... Pursuit of glory, but out of gratitude for what Jesus has already done for us and in our desire to joyfully imitate him. Remember, after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus spoke of this imitation. You also should do just as I have done to you. And in the event that some of his followers are are too proud to do this, or too reluctant to serve in a humble way, Jesus doubles down on this command. We read verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now there are two two little gems found in the Greek here that we shan't miss. I promised I would use the word shant today. There it is. Jesus has referred to himself as Lord, and the disciples have acknowledged him as Lord. And then he says, no servant is greater than his master. And the the Greek word there that's translated as master is the word Lord. It's the same word. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord, and the Lord's servants are not greater than the Lord. His message being, I have willingly served in a most humble way. And if you call me Lord, and yet you refuse to humbly serve as your master does, then your actions are speaking louder than your words. Your words may be saying Lord, but your actions are saying I think I'm greater than my Lord. May it never be. And to drive the point home further, in verse 16, the word messenger, which is apostolos, means sent one. And yes, that's where we get the word apostle. And so Jesus tells the apostles that they are not greater than the one who is sending them. So, were the disciples of Jesus left with any excuse to decline being a servant to one another? And how about you? If you call Jesus both Lord and teacher, are you living in light of that truth? Or is there any hesitation to serve humbly as he did? In other words, do you call him Lord, but do you resist his teaching? Or do you call him a great teacher and yet do not submit to him as Lord? Because Jesus is both Lord and Teacher, and His followers must be impacted by both of those titles. But surely Christ calls us to humbly serve only people who will appreciate it, right? And he, wouldn't, he wouldn't tell His spiritual brothers and sisters to serve ungrateful people, right? To love your enemies, or to pray for those who persecute you, or to... Bless those who curse you. Not only did Jesus say exactly that, but then he gave an example again to follow. Have you thought of the fact that Judas was there? Judas was there during the entire ordeal. And Jesus, knowing the satanic betrayal that Judas will commit later the same night, knelt before Judas and washed his feet. And within minutes, Judas is going to run with those perfectly washed feet to betray Jesus. And in the coming weeks, we're soon going to see that, that in verse 18, Jesus says somewhat ironically that Judas has lifted his heel against Jesus, But perhaps loving our enemies, serving people who are difficult to serve is one way to let your light shine in humble obedience to Christ, the greatest servant, and to bring glory to God. Now, there are those of you who are here today who are often eager to serve, and there are those of you here today who are often slow to serve. And there are lessons for you both. If you see yourself as one who joyfully serves, whether you consistently are serving your family or, or the church, let me say one thing. Praise God. Praise God for your service. Your service is incredibly valuable, and those who are near to you benefit from your servant's heart. But... Let's let Peter's reluctance of being served be a stern warning to you. If you consistently serve, do you reject being on the receiving end of service? Brace yourself because this might hurt. That might not be humility. That might be pride. If you find yourself joyfully serving others, but you always decline help from others... Could it be that you are holding on to your title of servant in a prideful way? Is it possible that you are, in fact, robbing your brothers and sisters of their joyful blessing in serving you? Remember that Jesus not only washed feet, but he didn't hinder Mary, the sister of Lazarus, from washing his feet not long before this. She was blessed by her humble service to Jesus. And his example of receiving service is also yours to follow. So don't hinder your brothers and sisters from obeying Jesus' command to serve you. Or perhaps you are more often in the camp of begrudging servant, slow to serve. Young people, here's what that looks like. Maybe you are picking and choosing the chores that mom and dad have for you. You've, you pick the fun ones to do. Sure, I'll ride on the riding lawnmower. Happy to serve. Here to help. But no, I'm not going to shovel snow. Can't my brother do that? I'm not willing to do all of the service. Adults, do you basically do the same thing? Are there certain aspects of serving that are a burden to you? Whether it's giving a ride or cooking a meal or caring for children or sharing the gospel. Because the opportunities to serve are are endless. But true humility in Christ will lead you to view time spent serving others both physically and spiritually, as time well spent. Because time spent becoming like Jesus is time well spent. So all of you, beloved of God, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus as he said, Do you understand what I have done to you? I, your Lord, have washed you Will you follow me? And let his final words here encourage you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father, your word is perfect, and we thank you for the miracle of preserving this word for us that you have inspired by your holy spirit authors to capture what jesus has done the absolute astounding humility of the savior to leave his position of glory and to empty himself and to take the form of a servant and to become obedient to the point of death on the cross, to wash us. We praise you that we are here being graciously caused to understand what Jesus has done and to joyfully imitate the service. To others. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to let your light shine for your glory alone so that more people can come to Jesus and be washed and more voices can praise your holy name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.